if you would please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter uh, 24. Matthew chapter 24, and we'll be reading from verses 1 to 14. Matthew chapter 24, 1 through 14. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord, verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came out to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And the end of the age, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not the end, uh, yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pains. They, then they will be deliver you to tribulation, and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And that time many will fall away, and will betray one another, and hate one another." Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because of lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But in the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the, whole, to the nations, and then the end will come. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we look into your word and this uh, text that... Uh, has been debated so much over church history, I pray that uh, we could look at the meaning of it and apply it to our lives. Father, I pray that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Uh, do you guys like pico? Everybody likes pico, right? Uh, everybody enjoys pico. How do you make a good pico? Well, to make a good pico, uh, you have to burnwaz the onion. Uh, to burnwaz the onion, you have to uh, take the onion, and uh, you want to kind of have it on a cutting board. And, of course, you want to use a chef knife, because that's the best way to do it. And uh, you want to grab the chef knife uh, with your, two, your index finger and your thumb. You want to grab it by the spine uh, of the knife, and that way you can have good control on it. And um, you want to keep the tip down, and you want to follow through kind of in a sawing motion. And then uh, your left hand, assuming you're cutting with your right hand, your left hand, you want to be careful how you position it. Uh, don't be a savage that you just put your hand flat and you're just going like that, you know. That, that's not good. Don't, don't do that. Uh, you're going to end up adding to the pico, and we don't want what you're going to add to the pico, right? That, that's not going to be good. Uh, so you have to position your, your hand that's going to be holding the produce. You, you kind of use your fingers as a guide, and you curve them down, and so that the blade of your knife just slides right there against your fingers. 
keep your thumb behind. Don't, don't do this where you keep your thumb, thumb out. Don't do that. Keep your thumb behind. And so what you first start to burn as an onion is that you have to do horizontal slices into the onion. You make the horizontal slices. Uh, and then you have to julienne the onion. So you come from the top and you do slices down, right? You're moving down. And then this is where you finally bernoise the onion. It's when you take it and you start cutting those dice, the small, small dice. Now, you're probably saying, um, we're talking about pico. Uh, shouldn't we be asking a Mexican how to do pico? Isn't it a bit arrogant to be using a French technique to be making something Mexican? Uh, isn't it a bit arrogant for me to be using a French technique to be showing how to make pico? The reason why this is the correct way is because uh, it ensures a couple of things. One, it ensures safety. Uh, you have control of the knife and you have control of the product so that you're not adding extra things into the pico, like blood and nail and, and skin. And nobody wants no pico with that stuff in it. The other thing that it does is it ensures a consistent product. Like, uh, you're not going to have big pieces of onion in your pico. Who wants a big piece of onion in your pico? You're like grabbing a little bit of pico, and then there's a whole thing of onion. You know. And of course, you want to spread it out, but you can't spread it out. You want uniform size. You want a consistent product. So you, uh, you do it that way. And it ensures it's the proper way because it ensures your safety. You're not adding extra stuff in. And it ensures uh, a consistent product. Now, using the illustration of this, uh, there's a proper way to interpret Scripture. And, and we're in this text, and this text is very debated. I mean, extremely debated. And I'm going to present an interpretation that uh, will be a correct one. And you might say, well, Daniel, that is quite arrogant. You're, um, you're young, right? You guys say you're young. young. Yeah, you're young, and... Um, uh, how can you dare say that uh, you're going to provide a correct interpretation? I mean, there's all the church fathers ahead of you that have interpreted this text in a myriad of ways. Uh, you have all the reformers that have engaged in this text, and they've given a whole myriad of their interpretations. And now you're going to come on this Sunday to this church and say, they're going to offer you a correct interpretation of this. To have a correct interpretation, you have to have a couple things. And the first is, you have to interpret the text literally. Literally. A literal interpretation. A literal interpretation takes uh, special care of looking at the author's intent. So if he uses a, a figure of speech, the figure of speech is, is, uh, is highlighted. Uh, so when it talks about... Uh, the mustard seed, obviously Jesus is not talking about an actual mustard seed. It, it represents something more, and it's the author's intent. Uh, when he's talking about the uh, sheep and the goat and the separation of the sheep and the goat, obviously he's not talking about literal sheep and goat. Jesus is not uh, thinking at the end of the time, I need to make sure that I keep my goats over here and my sheep over here. That's not the point. The point is uh, those who are following God and those who are not. So a, a literal interpretation looks at the author's intended meaning. The other thing is that you have to look at, uh, you have to make the interpretation grammatical. Uh, Spain, uh, paying special attention to um, the verbs, the subjects, the direct objects, indirect objects. Um, what, what grammatical changes are happening? What's, what's going on with the pre, uh, presuppositions? Uh, what, what's going on there? 
there's a grammatical change that happens in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, where as uh, metatauta, it's uh, two Greek words, uh, after these things. So uh, you have the first chapters that are uh, looking at the seven churches, but then it goes metatauta, and then it goes, jumps to the future. If you ignore that uh, metatauta, you're going to make all types of mistakes in interpreting the book of Revelation. Uh, then you also interpret contextually, context. Uh, a contextual interpretation uh, looks at uh, the text surrounding. It would be an error to uh, interpret this text without noticing what has happened before. It, it would be an error to just take these one, uh, this chapter in chapter 25 and divorce it from everything that's been going on, everything that Jesus has been doing, and say, this is what I believe the text says. You have to use the context. And then there's a, a historical interpretation, and that historical interpretation is very important to find out what's happening at the time when the book was written, when the things that were happening. For example, the historical context of the book of Deuteronomy is much, much different than the historical context of Ephesians. To assume that they're one and the same, you're going to come out with a crazy interpretation. They're, they're just totally different. Now, I, I had slides for those uh, four points, the literal, grammatical, contextual, and uh, historical. Yep. And we use these to do three things. And this is what we're going to look at. The next thing is, uh, how do we do this? How do we interpret this method? Uh, the first thing you have to do is observe in the text. You have to observe. You're observing the text. You're looking at things. You're making note of all types of stuff. How much things can be noted from 14 verses? You might say, well, not very many. I had a, uh, exam I had a, a professor that uh, gave us an uh, assignment to do, which was to find 50 observations from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And uh, we worked all week on getting 50 uh, observations from Acts 1-8, and he collected all those, and then he said he wanted another 50 from Acts 1-8. So 100 observations just from one verse. So imagine how many observations we could get from 14 verses. There's a lot of uh, observations that you can make looking at each one of these things. The second thing you want to do is then interpret. Now, a lot of times people want to jump to interpreting before they observe the text. They just start like, you know, wild, wild west people, just boom, 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 and, and they want to interpret the text. You first need to observe the text, see what's going on. Where, where are they? Did they move from one place to another? Why did they move? What, what's going on? Uh, who's being addressed? Who's talking? Because if you ignore all of that, who the audience is, who's, who's speaking, you're not going to have a correct interpretation. And, and then the third thing that you have to do, and this is, uh, it's applying the text. You have to apply it. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people that have a lot of neat observations of the text, and they have an awesome interpretation of the text, and it doesn't get any further than that. Like, it has no change in their life. Obviously, interpretation is understanding the text, but the text doesn't have the purpose of just fulfilling curiosities in our mind. It's not just so that we can, like, oh, I didn't realize that. It's not like a fact book where you're like, oh, that's interesting. I never knew that. There's a purpose in this text, and this text's purpose is to change our lives, to make us more like Christ and less like ourselves. It's unfortunate that many, many, many of us have a ton of information, and what we actually put into practice is very, very small of all the information that we know. 
Now, the historical context that we're looking at here is, uh, if you remember, there, uh, Jesus came in in the triumphal entry. All the people were screaming, Hosanna to the son of David. He was there at the temple. He's doing these miracles. He's teaching with authority. The Pharisees and the scribes are totally antagonistic against this. They're asking, with what authority are you doing this? The, the scene is set that Jesus is king. He's the Messiah. And if we fail to notice that contextually from what's going on in this week, this, this week that's leading up to his crucifixion, uh, it starts off in, in Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the fulfillment. This is Jesus. That's the context that we're looking at, and the one who's going to set up a, um, the Davidic kingdom. Now you might say, well, Daniel, you're, you're offering something very sterile, very uh, systematic. And yeah, uh, uh, an, an orthodox interpretation of, of Scripture is rather boring. Uh, you don't find out these uh, little issues that people want to harp on. It's just, it's there, and you pull out what's there. Now, in this that we're looking at, what we're going to look at specifically is that Christians must stay faithful to God by seeing life through God's perspective. Seeing life through God's perspective. And we have a tendency, unfortunately, to see life through our perspective or see life through our theology. And we shouldn't look at life through our perspective or through our theology, but rather look, through, uh, look at our life through God's perspective. And the way that we do this is by paying close attention, to pay close attention to the real Christ. And we see this in verses 1 through 5. As we look at this text, it says, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Now, the main verb here is you know, he was going away. He was departing from there. And don't miss that. Don't miss that he is done talking with the Pharisees. He's done talking with the scribes. He's departing, and they're happy. You know, they've, they've moved away, but here Jesus is, is moving away, and they're, like, happy that this is happening, you know? They, they, they wish he would just disappear once and for all. They're going to make plans later on to how to kill them, but they don't get the theological significance of the fact that God in flesh has removed himself from their presence. And that's something very sad because I think sometimes it happens to us. Where we're living our life, supposedly pleasing to the Lord, and God's not there. Oh, we have a vocabulary and we have a dress and we have the look, but God's not present. Jesus is departing and before he departs, they want to show him the the building, the temple compound, how wonderful it was. Herod spent so many years uh, building it, and so many thousands of people involved in it. There was huge stones that weighed tons. And, and supposedly it was very, very ornate, very beautiful, and they want to show it to him. And Jesus' response to this is verse 2, and he said to them, uh, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you that not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Can you imagine the shock of hearing that? You're like, look at how wonderful this building is, and you think this is, this is fantastic. This is the place that, that represents the house of God on this earth. 
This is where all of Israel comes uh, three times a year to worship the Lord. This is like the center. This is where it's at. This is where the sacrifices are done. This is where the Passover lamb is sacrificed. and The other lamb is taken out of the city. This is where it happens. And Jesus says, God's not here. It's going to be destroyed. Not one stone upon the other. They don't say anything. <laughs> Maybe they're trying to keep the peace. They don't want something else to happen. But as they move away, there's a, a shift that happens from being in the temple compound to uh, being in the Mount of Olives. There they are now at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is sitting. Very similar as when he was uh, doing the Beatitudes where he sat and, and taught. He's there uh, sitting, and the disciples come up to him now privately, it says. And they have three questions that they want to address that they would like for Jesus to explain to them. It says, tell us when... Uh, Will these things happen? That's the first question. Uh, what will be the sign of your coming? That's the second question. And then the third one is they're asking what the sign of the end of the age is going to be. So three questions. When will it happen? What's the sign of your coming? What's the sign of the end of the age? Now the first question he's not going to answer. He's not going to go in and explain when he's going to come. He is going to start addressing the signs of when he will come and when the end of the age will be. Now, as we look at this, uh, Jesus is now going to answer them. And he says, uh, Jesus answered and said to them, See, I don't know if you like highlighting in your Bible, uh, that is a uh, present imperative, to see. It's the same verb used over in, in verse 2, do you not see? Uh, those two verbs are the same. In verse 6, we'll look in just a minute, but there's another C in it. It's a different Greek verb, and so we're going to look at that in just a, in just a minute. Uh, but this C has the idea of, of taking note, of paying attention, paying, paying close attention, or making yourself oriented towards a particular direction. He's saying, you look specifically in this direction. And... Uh, he says, see that no one misleads you. Uh, how are people going to be misled? For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will, uh, will mislead many. That word mislead is, has this idea of uh, uh, taking somebody astray, moving them, moving them astray, taking them away. Uh, how do you not be led astray? It involves looking at the real Christ rather than the fake Christ. It, it takes time to get to know Christ, who he is, what he's about, his purpose, his plan, so that when a counterfeit comes up and says something different, you can see that, you can hear that and say, no, that's not for real. That's, that's not Christ. That's something else. That's going to lead me down another path. I think we can apply this paying close attention to Christ so as not to be misled by, by maybe applying it in three different areas. The, the first is to look to Jesus for salvation. And uh, salvation from what? Well, salvation from the wrath of God. See, we're, we're all born sinners. Uh, we're all born sinners. And, and usually if you ask somebody if they're a sinner, most will say, oh, yes, I am. Uh, you, usually, very rare cases, a child will say, no, I, I'm not. I was, 
uh, talking to a child this, uh, this last BBS and uh, asking about uh, if, they knew, if they knew that they were a sinner. And I said, no. I said, you, you've never done anything wrong? Nope. A very young child. I was like, okay, well, you can't proceed with the gospel unless the person understands that they are a sinner and that that sin causes death. It causes a separation from God. The wages of our sin is death. The, the only way that we can get close to God is through a free gift, which is uh, Jesus Christ. It's by putting my faith not in my works or in what I know, but it's by putting my faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. I accept his death in my place, that my sin was put to his account, that he gave me his righteousness, that he was buried, he rose from the dead, and he's ascended at the right hand of the Father. I put my faith in that to save me. Now the question uh, we have to ask is, what are you looking at? Are you looking to Jesus for your salvation? Or maybe you're looking at something else. Maybe you're looking at your church attendance. Maybe you keep it in your Bible and you've seen all the attendance dates and your hope is put in your attendance record. Or maybe your hope is, is put in a prayer that you said at one time. You, you repeated a prayer after a person, and so now your hope and faith is that you repeated a prayer, and so therefore you're saved. Or maybe uh, you wrote in the front of your Bible a certain date where you did a prayer, and now your hope is built in the fact that on a certain date you did something. It's looking to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, is fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Not, not on anything else. Jesus, putting our eyes on Jesus. Now, I hope that all of you all have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. I hope that there has been a time in your life where you said, I can't save myself. And I hope that today you can say, I am trusting Jesus. It's not a thing of the past. I am putting my faith in Jesus and what he did. But I'm going to speak to those who have already accepted Jesus Christ as your uh, personal Savior. And I want to say that we all have a responsibility to be encouraging others to gaze, to look at Jesus. We would call this evangelism. Now, when I say the word evangelism, uh, what comes to your mind? Right. For some, you might think of evangelism and you think of uh, a big uh, Billy Graham type thing, you know, campaign, evangelistic campaign, where it's the big uh, place and, and when they speak, it's got the echo. Hello, hello, we're glad. And it goes like, you know what it's like. Uh, maybe that's what you think of evangelism. And when you think, if we're going to evangelize to people, we need to have a big event and get somebody important to come here and speak and we can invite people. And maybe that's your idea of evangelism. Some might think, well, evangelism, that's the job of the pastor. That's what he's supposed to be doing is evangelizing. He's supposed to go out and tell people, and, and he's supposed to grow the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, says that God has given the gift of pastor-teacher for the equipping of the saints. So if the saints are being equipped, the saints have the responsibility to evangelize. Yes, evangelize. 
It's the church's responsibility to reproduce themselves. Obviously, the pastor is involved in that too. Obviously, the elders, obviously, the deacons are all involved in that. But it's not the big event thing. Evangelism should just be an organic part of our life. It's just something that comes out. We realize that God sovereignly put me in a family, put me in a neighborhood, put me in a job, and I come into contact with people that other people here don't come in contact. It should just flow out of us. Look to Jesus. He came to save your soul. Now, not only do we look to Jesus for our salvation, but we also look to Jesus for our sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which we become holy. We become more like Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 uh, says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Christ is working in us to make us more like Christ and less like ourselves. They had put their hope in the temple, that they were going to meet with God at the temple. And God's saying, no, that's going to be destroyed. I'm not there. You're going to grow and become more like Christ. That's where the hope is, is to look to Christ. Now, when we think about this process of sanctification, how, how does that get initiated? Obviously, the first step is a person has to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Because unless there is life, that person is dead. There can't be growing to become more holy if they're dead and separate from God. Once that person accepts Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, God in His plan has decided to use crooked instruments like us to be involved in the lives of other individuals. That's called discipleship. It's where... I take what I've learned and what I am practicing and I invest it into the life of somebody else to help them know a little bit more and to practice a little bit more. That's the process of discipleship. Well, who is supposed to be discipling? Some (laughs) have this idea that, uh, well, the Great Commission was given to the disciples, so it must be just the disciples that were supposed to do this, and they've all died, so... We don't have to make disciples. Hot dog, let's go home. That would be a wrong interpretation. That would be a wrong understanding, especially of all the uh, one another verses that are found in the epistles, how we're supposed to be involved with one another, loving one another, exhorting one another. That would disregard all those one another's. Uh, You don't want to do that. You'll have to cut out a lot of verses. Uh, Christ expects us all to be investing our life in the life of other people. That's the process of discipleship, to help somebody go from where they're at to be a little bit more like Christ. And God in his sovereignty has asked, not asked, he gives us the opportunity to be involved in this. That's a huge privilege. That's a fantastic privilege. It's not a burden. It's something we get to do, that God uses crooked sticks to draw a straight line. How does he do it? Because he's sovereignly in control of it. It's an amazing thing. Now, This process of discipleship is investing what I know about God and what I'm obeying into another believer's life. This is where we go back to that process of interpretation where we observe first, we interpret, and then we apply. Some of us might have a bunch of knowledge, but our application is so small that we have nothing to teach to somebody else. 
oh, we know all the Bible stories. We know a bunch of things, but we just don't put it into practice. Paul David uh, Tripp makes the uh, analogy between a, um, a travel agent and a tour guide. A travel agent is uh, this person who sits in this nice office. We, we don't see travel agents anymore because of Expedia, but uh, you, do you remember travel agents? They had those nice little offices with those pictures of posters of different places. And uh, you ask them, uh, I want to go somewhere good. And they say, I've got the perfect place. And they start typing on their computer. And uh, I remember in Venezuela when we uh, go to the travel agent, they'd uh, print off the tickets. They had this big uh, uh, printer that had the, the, feet, the feet of paper, you know, it would just all be continuous. And they go, and then they'd rip it off and they'd give you like this whole stack of papers, like, take this to the airport, you know? Um, the travel agent can tell you a bunch of stuff. Go here, go there. This is how much the plane tickets cost. This is what the cruise will be. But has that person ever been there? Most likely not. They sit at a desk. They look at these places through a computer screen. But they don't really have experience in it. A tour guide is different. A tour guide's there. Tour guide says, no, don't go down that alley. <laughs> you don't want to go down that alley. Eat at this restaurant. This restaurant has excellent food. They've been there. They know what to do. They've walked the streets. Many of us uh, are like travel agents. We have information, but we haven't put it into practice. And God calls us to be actual tour guides, where we have the information, and we've been through it, and we're helping others to come along and do that too. It's a responsibility and a privilege that God gives us all. Not just the pastor, not just the elders, the whole church. It's something very beautiful when organically the church is involved with this, looking to help others grow. Not as a big program, but each looking for opportunities to invest their life in the life of somebody else. Now, we saw looking at Jesus for salvation. We look at Jesus for sanctification. We also look at Jesus for our glorification. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. I think that's the, uh, the theme verse for the nursery. I think they have that tattooed on their back back there. Just kidding. Um, in, in a moment, in a twinkle of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and uh, we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable and the mortal must put on immortality. When this perishable will have put on imperishable and this mortal have put on immortality, then will come uh, about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. In a moment, at a time in the future, we'll receive a glorified body. Now that's the work of of Christ, of God in us. That's something he's going to do. But we look to him now, anticipating that he's going to do that. I don't know if you've read the book, uh, The Green Ember, but because of a different struggle and fights that have been happening, uh, the woods have been burned. And they look forward to the mended wood. That time when it will be peace again in their little rabbits, um, their little rabbits, and they'll have their rabbit kingdoms again. They look forward to the mended wood. This is the process of glorification. We anticipate that. 
unfortunately, many of us were so focused on today, on now, on tomorrow and next week, that we don't look anticipating for the future and what God is going to do in us. Now, we have to look at the real Christ. We can't look at fakes. We can't look at counterfeits. The other thing that we need to do is stay calm by um, being spiritually perceptive. And that's where we get into this uh, verse 6. In, in verse 6, the, the verb is different here. It's also an imperative, but it's a, just a totally different verb. And it carries a, a different idea. It has this idea of being mentally or spiritually perceptive. So that you kind of have this uh, perceptive of what's going on. You have a clear understanding of what's going on. Uh, if you notice there in verse 6, it says, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. And then it says, um, See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not uh, yet the end. So uh, the seeing is on one part, there's these wars and there's these rumors of wars, but we're supposed to be spiritually perceptive uh, so that it doesn't bring us any fright. We're not going around frightened. This word frightened has this idea of an inner turmoil where the person is distressed inside. Or they might look very calm on the outside, but inside they're not. They don't know what it's going to be like tomorrow. They hear about these wars, they hear about these rumors of wars, and he says... Don't worry, this is not the end. It says, verse 7, For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. This is the part where people usually buy the newspaper and they open it up and they start trying to correlate the one and the two. The purpose was not to buy a newspaper. Jesus is not giving this so that you'll go out and buy a newspaper. But to realize that all of this is in God's sovereign control. All of this is happening because He's allowing it. He's bringing it to pass. And He's telling us, be spiritually perceptive that you're not frightened because your eyes are not on the turmoil. It's on that God is in control. And He says that this is just the beginnings of birth pains. Then we'll be delivered you to tribulation and, you will, uh, and we'll kill you and you will be hated by all the nations because of my name. Not because you're religious, but because you preach Jesus Christ. People love when you start talking about Papa God and, and uh, on and on and on. But when you start presenting Jesus Christ and having faith in Jesus Christ, uh, that's where people start to dislike you and not care for you. Especially when you start going to the exclusive nature that there's salvation in no one else except for Jesus Christ. Now, what this will bring about, as it says, uh, at that time, verse 10, many will fall away. Uh, this word, fall away, carries uh, a couple different uh, meanings. A uh, word carries, different, uh, depending on context. In Matthew 5, 29, that falling away has this idea of, of sinning. In Matthew eleven six, 6, it has this idea of being offensive. And in Matthew 13, 21, it has this idea of departing from the faith. And then in Matthew 26, 31 and verse 33, Jesus says that his disciples were going to fall away, that uh, he was going to be turned in, and at that moment, uh, everybody was going to scatter. 
And, of course, Peter says, I will never fall away, uh, which is verse 33. Uh, he <laughs> kind of holds himself in high, high regard. Here are some individuals who, because they'll be looking at this wrong Christ and because they'll be looking at the wars and rumors of wars, they're going to be falling away, they'll be betraying one another, they'll be hating one another. And there'll be this, uh, many false prophets will rise and will mislead many. And then it says, uh, because of lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. It'll be kind of like a fire that starts to be extinguished. No longer is burning, but it becomes extinguished. And that's how people's love will be, because where there's this lawlessness, love can't increase. And then uh, it says in verse 13, but the, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now this has caused a lot of problems. And this is uh, something that we kind of have to look at because we have to ask ourselves, uh, saved from what? What are these people going to be saved from? If they endure to the end, what are they going to be saved from? Uh, maybe it's going to be saved from the wars, from the hating, from the killing, from the famine, from the earthquakes. Well, that can't be true because we know of Christians who have been killed, who have starved. The disciples were all martyred except for John and uh, he was put on the island of Patmos. Uh, so we can't say that the saving is saving from uh, these hardships. Well, maybe this saving means uh, a saving from the sins. If you interpret that as if you endure, you'll be, uh, if you endure to the end, you will be saved, uh, you have a theological problem. And the theological problem goes like this. Basically, what you would be articulating at that point is that a person comes to salvation by having faith in Jesus Christ plus endurance equals salvation. And that causes all types of theological problems. Our interpretations have to dovetail together. And that would not dovetail with the Gospel of John or with Genesis 15:6 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to righteousness. It doesn't congeal with uh, Romans. It doesn't congeal with anything. So you have to say, save from what? And this is where our context comes into play. Contextually, he's saying that there's going to be some individuals, because of the lawlessness will be increased, most people's love will grow cold. I think, if we look at contextually, the people being saved is having their love grow cold, and they're still loving that regardless of the hardships, regardless of everything going on, they, instead of having apathy, instead of being selfish, instead of being just focused on themselves, they're still loving. I would say contextually, that's what it presents. And then verse 14 says, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. That word gospel of the kingdom is, only appears in the gospel of Matthew and appears in two other places and here three times in the whole New Testament. Shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Some have taken this to uh, interpret that um, if we can somehow spread the gospel to the whole world, we can just bring this whole age to an end. Uh, so let's get out there and do it. And of course, I, I appreciate that. And so I say, yes, go out and do it. You know, and uh, let's all go out and do it together. Uh, it's not uh, talking about um, that, that if we can gospel, uh, present the gospel to the 
to everybody in this world, then somehow the end will come. Uh, rather, it, it's talking about a time in the future that there will still be preaching of the gospel, even though it goes all the way to the end. And the end uh, marks a time of the end uh, of man and when Christ establishes kingdom. Now, when we look at this about staying calm by being spiritually perceptive, I want to look at two applications. The first is that uh, inner turmoil. Inner turmoil. Many of us live anxious lives. And the reason we have anxious lives is because our focus is on wars and rumors of wars, on famines, on hate, on people disliking, on killings, and so forth. And they've got uh, the, the, uh, ulcers the size of dinner plates in their stomach because they're worried and worried and worried because their eyes are focused on everything that's going on. They watch TV, they read newspapers, or look at articles, they listen to the inside people who have the inside information about what's going on politically, economically, ecologically, etc., etc., etc. And what's interesting is that with more and more information that they have, they have less and less peace. Well, maybe if I read one more article, maybe if I know one more bit of information, I, I'll be able to rest. But it doesn't bring rest. It just brings more turmoil in their life. And that's how they live, because their eyes are focused on the circumstances that are going around them. Another way to live, which is staying calm by being spiritually perceptive, is by having an inner peace, which is looking to Christ and understanding that He is in total control. He's in total control when they crucify him just a little bit, a couple days later. He's in total control when they kill those who are following him and they persecute. He's in total control in times of famine, in times of hostility, in times of war. He's in total control. He's sovereign. He doesn't like, oops, I didn't see that coming. S sorry. Oh, that's going to hurt. He, he's not like that. And you say, but wars and famines and pestilence and all this thing does not, uh, I don't understand how God uses this. And we don't have to understand how God uses it. We just have to put our faith that God is good. And He's always good. And He does everything for His glory and for our good. How is a famine for my good? How is a war for my, I don't understand that. But my point is not to put my faith in the war or in the pestilence or in the famine. I put my faith in the good God who loves me and sent His Son to die for me. And that brings an inner peace. It's, it's looking by being spiritually perceptive, not at what's going on around you, but looking at God. For some of you, to do this, you uh, might have to turn off your TV. You might have to cancel your newspaper subscription. There might be people in your life that come up to you and they just feed you everything going on in the world and you might need to tell them stop. And you might need to find other friends who will turn your, help you turn your eyes to Christ. You might say, this is a weakness in my area and I need somebody spiritual to get involved in my life and help me grow. 
Now, as we look at this, Christians must stay faithful to God by seeing life through God's perspective. And God's perspective that's presented in chapter 24 is that he's in control. There's not a single war. There's not a single thing that's going to happen out of his control. That's the perspective. As we try to interpret this, we try to interpret it in a way that's literal, grammatical, historical, contextual. And we do that so that we don't add our theological insights into it and um, we produce uh, a consistent interpretation. Just like the pico. Remember the pico? We don't want to add body parts to the pico. Uh, so we do things the correct way. We interpret scripture in a correct way so that we don't add to the text, but we pull out of the text. Now, for some of you, you can't pay attention to the real Christ because you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. Like that, that's not been a reality in your life. You've never believed that Jesus Christ died for you, took your sins. You've never put your faith in that. And I would encourage you in just a moment when we're going to have an invitation to come forward, I'd love to share the gospel with you. Some of you are, uh, are in so much inner turmoil because your eyes are put on, not on God, not on his program, not on his perspective, but you're looking at everything. And what you need to do is repent of that and put your eyes on God and what he's doing. I would encourage you now to bow your heads with me. Father, I pray now as we have this time of invitation that your spirit would convict our hearts of sin. Father, if there's someone here who has never accepted Christ as their Savior, that today will be the day of salvation. Father, I pray that today that they will put their faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for other of us who maybe we've been looking at the wrong thing. We're worried about budgets. We're worried about... Uh, finances, we're worried about work, job, family, health, economies, etc., etc., etc. I pray that we will repent of that and that we will put our eyes on you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.